Welcome to this week's message from Mountain Park Church. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we hope that as you listen to today's message, you feel challenged and inspired to give God more room to work in your life this week. So the text that I want to uh, center on is in verse 10. I'll read it to you again. Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. Today I'm calling this last message in our breakthrough series, It's not small, but it's a start. I want you just to repeat that after me. It's not small, but it's a start. So much of my life, I have been waiting around and looking for the grand plan. I've been waiting around and hoping for God to drop these huge opportunities into my lap. I've been waiting around and hoping for God to bring blessing into my life. And God has been reminding me in the last few weeks that blessing begins with the small things that we hand back over to God. And to understand fully the context of these verses we read, we need just a little bit of a history lesson. So Israel... 59 years before this, the Babylonians came and they sacked Jerusalem and they conquered Israel as a nation. And part of what they did when they overthrew Jerusalem was they burned down the temple that Solomon had built and they took tens of thousands of exiles back to Babylon to bring them into integrating into Babylonian culture. And so for almost a generation, the Israelites have been integrated into this other culture. Their temple has been destroyed and they've been left floundering. And through God's grace and his mercy and his wisdom, he actually, he actually spoke to the king of Babylon, Darius, and said, I, I want you to send the Israelites back. You can go back home. And so after 50 or 59 years, the king of Persia at the time of Babylon allows Israel to go back to Jerusalem and to begin to rebuild their lives in their native land. And the first thing that they do when they go back is they start to rebuild the foundation of the temple. It's the very first thing they do. But in the process of constructing the foundation of the temple, they run into opposition. And some of the people around them, one of the guys named Sanballat, he comes and he says, look, we're going to help you do this, but we're going to help you only if you allow us to worship our gods in this temple too. And so we want this to be a communal place for all kinds of different religions to practice here. And they began to to run into opposition when the Israelites said, no, that's not going to cut it, that's not going to fly. Sanballat and his guys started to form a coup and create opposition to the rebuilding of the temple. And Sanballat actually went to King Darius and he said, look, you got to stop these guys from rebuilding. What they're doing is not beneficial for us. It's not going to get us anywhere. And in the face of this opposition... 
that they experienced, the Israelites, through frustration, gave up. They stopped building at the foundation layer of the temple because the opposition they were facing was too much. Their resources were depleted. They were hopeless. And so they shifted their focus. And they shifted their focus in a way that had dramatic consequences for them in the short term. They stopped rebuilding the temple And then this is what happens. To get some context, we're going to back up one book to the book of Haggai. And Haggai kind of explains this whole scene from a bit of a third-person perspective. And this is what it says in Haggai, starting in uh, chapter 1, verse 2. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies says. The people are saying... The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So this is the Israelites that have come back to Jerusalem, started the foundation and then stopped. They begin to say, look, it's actually not the right time to do this. Verse 3, then the Lord sent this message through the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. You have planted much, but harvest little. You eat, but are not satisfied. You drink, but are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but can't keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you're putting them in pockets filled with holes. That sounds familiar. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. I think the first spot we need to just plant ourselves is in recognizing and seeing ourselves in this story because it's not unfamiliar to us. In fact, the Israelites even went as far as to claim some kind of religious reasoning and rationale for why they stopped building the temple. We have these sayings in church that sometimes we cling to in a dysfunctional way. I don't know if you've ever said it or you've heard someone say something like, I'm just waiting on God. I'm just praying about it. And we have these things that roll off our tongue. And before we know it, we've just been praying about something for months and months and months, maybe years. Before we know it, our waiting on God has turned into complete inactivity. Our muscles spiritually are in atrophy because we're not using them. And then we have the nerve to say, God, I'm just waiting on you. I'm just waiting. I'm just in a season of prayer on this. And the Israelites in this season were using that same excuse. They were actually referring to a prophetic statement from Daniel and before that said that the temple was not to be rebuilt until X date. And so they come back to Israel. God gives them the uh, ability to begin building the foundation. Then things get hard. Then things get real and life starts getting tough and they pull back. And they pull back and use a spiritual excuse for their inactivity. They use a spiritual rationale to cover up what they know they're not doing. 
I'm just praying about it, God. I'm just waiting on you, God. And all the while, what God is actually asking us to do is is left undone in our hearts and in our life. And the first point I want to make is require or work. Oh, I can't even get that right. It won't get better if I get louder either. I've tried that. (laughs) Waiting. I even wrote them down today, and I still blew the first one. Man. All right. Waiting requires work. So here's the scenario. The Israelites, they're back. They start the foundation. There's opposition. They back away. And then they turn their whole resource, their whole energy into building homes for themselves and improving their own lives. They shift their focus away from their community responsibility to rebuild the temple to taking care of number one. And in the middle of that, while they're working to pay their wages and build a house and bring in the harvest, while they're focusing all of their energy on that, they're excusing their inaction spiritually by saying, well, it's just not time yet. I'll give to God when I feel he moves me to do it. I'll do it at some later time. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, yeah, I'll get to that, but not right now. I've got other things I'm trying to work on. I'm trying to build my business here. I've got to get through this one hurdle, and then after I clear this hurdle, then, then God, I'm going to give you the rest of my life. I'm going to give you this. And we, we make these conditional statements to God. Where we say, God, I, I, I know that I should be doing this or living this way. But just wait, just not quite yet. I just need to clear this. I need breakthrough in this one area before I will actually address this other one. And so we spend our lives cloaking, cloaking our lack of movement spiritually with some sort of false religious pretense. And that's exactly where Israel finds themselves. They started well, and so often we start well. So often we, we, we come into these seasons where God is working in our life and we begin to rebuild the foundations of our faith and we, we begin to, to hit reset on areas of our life we know we need to address. But the moment opposition comes, we put it down and we focus on something else. We distract ourselves from the real work that God wants us to do inside. And that's what's happening for Israel It continues on. In verse 8, now go up into the hills, bring down timber, and rebuild my house. Then I will take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You hoped for rich harvests, but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, says the Lord of heaven's armies. While all of you are busy building your own fine houses, it's because of you that the heavens withhold the dew and the earth produces no crops. 
I have called for a drought on your fields and hills, a drought to wither the grain and grapes and olive trees and all other crops, a drought to starve you and your livestock and ruin everything you have worked so hard to get. Wow. I was reflecting on my own life in, in these seasons of my life where I was pushing at 110%, just pushing and pushing and pushing, working as hard as I could, crazy long hours, being away from my family, making all of these sacrifices that I thought God wanted me to make, not realizing that it wasn't the stuff that I was doing that he was looking for. It was to rebuild my life spiritually. In the New Testament, the Bible says that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that God actually lives in us. He doesn't need a brick and mortar temple anymore. And God is calling us today to come back and rebuild our hearts, to come back and forget about all this ancillary stuff, all this other stuff that we've been distracted by. To come back and say, God, I'm here. I want you to rebuild me from the inside out, from my very core. And it's no wonder we struggle with futility. We work so hard but feel like we're not getting ahead. We think we're making smart decisions and wise choices. But I believe that sometimes it is actually God who is withholding from us. Because the things we think we're working so hard to get ahead in are not the things that he's asking us to do. When in fact he's just saying, come back to me. And when you do, I'll take care of that other stuff. It's not that our work and our families and all these things are not important. They're very important to God. But we have tragically reorganized God's structure in our life. And we've put all of these things ahead of our own relationship with him. And I believe even to some of you specifically today, I don't know where you're at in your faith, but I believe that Jesus is saying, just come back to me first. Rebuild my house. Rebuild your life spiritually. Soften your heart again and just come back. Don't worry about the things that are stressing you out beyond belief. Don't worry about what you don't have and what you're missing. Just first return back to me. And then in verse 12, then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, son of Jehozodak, I think, Wow, so glad I don't live back then. Andrew, I don't even know what my name would be. But, um, the high priest and the whole remnant of God's people began to obey the message from the Lord their God. When they heard the words of the prophet Haggai, whom the Lord their God had sent, the people feared the Lord. You know, the Bible says in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is hatred towards sin. 
meaning that in their fearing God, they recognized the holiness of God. They recognized that there was a huge chasm between them and God. And that their first call to action was simply to come back to him. And what's really neat is, is as that story continues, it says that the Lord actually gave them the energy and the passion to begin work again. And so often we feel like, God, I, that's the last thing I want to do. The last thing I feel, I have no passion to spend time in your word. I have no passion to rededicate my life to you spiritually. And sometimes we don't. But what his word promises is that if we begin to lead, if we take the first steps, that he will actually fill us with the passion and the desire to do the things that are in alignment with his purposes for us. In chapter two, it gives us a little bit more context of the scene. So after 50 odd years, they begin to rebuild. God has got their attention. And as they begin to rebuild, this is what Haggai says in chapter two, verse three. Does anyone remember this house, this temple, in its former splendor? How in comparison does it look to you now? It must seem like nothing at all. You know, the second obstacle that they were facing was one of this forgotten memory of God working and moving so powerfully in their life. They were coming against this opposition of, of God, you blessed me and you blessed us in the past. This, this former temple that Solomon built was, was filled with majesty and with splendor. And, and when the nation dedicated it, it said that the fire of God fell in the temple. And they look at what they have now. This small little foundation, these shoddy tools they're working with, under-resourced, and they're looking at what they have in front of them and they're saying, God, it's nothing compared to what it was. And I know for some of you, you you've spent the last season of your life hoping and wishing for God to do again in you what he once did before. Your memory goes back and you get nostalgic about these powerful encounters you've had with God or these churches that you've been involved in that saw great movements of God. And you say, God, if only it was like that again. If only I could get back to this or that. And the Israelites are confronted with this stark reality that what God was doing before them now was different than what he had done in the past. They were struggling. They were struggling because there was opposition before them. Their resources were laughable. They had nothing. And these older men, who probably would have been about 10 years old and seen the first temple, it says as they started to rebuild that the older men wept. They wept because they remembered the glory and splendor of what was. And I believe they wept because they couldn't reconcile what was in the past with what was God calling them to in their future. 
And it says that the younger people, they celebrated. This was amazing for them. They didn't get a chance to to see God come in power in their life yet. So the Bible says these older men wept. And so often, the reason we don't see breakthroughs is because we're busy crying about things that happened in our past. We get nostalgic. And we just say, God, just do what you did before. You worked so powerfully in my life when I was 18 or 19. God, I want to go back to that time. I want to go back to that experience in church. I want to go back to that camp experience. I want to feel you like I did then. And what God was saying to the Israelites in that season was we're not going back. That's not what we're here to do. We're not here to recreate a former time in your life. We're here to move forward. And this is what it says. It says, be strong. And you people still left in the land and get to work for I am with you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. My spirit remains among you, just as I promised when you came up out of Egypt. So do not be afraid. For this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. In just a little while, I will again shake the heavens and the earth, the oceans and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and the treasures of all the nations will be brought to this temple. I will fill this thing that you're mocking right now. I will fill this thing that you feel is hopeless and discouraging and fruitless and futile. I will fill this thing that you think is not worthy. I will fill this place with glory, says the Lord of heaven's army. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of heaven's army. The future glory of this temple will be greater Then it's past glory, says the Lord of heaven's armies. And in this place, I will bring peace. I, the Lord of heaven's armies, have spoken. The second point I want to leave with you today is what God wants to do next is always greater than what he did before. It's always greater. And we get trapped in these cycles where we get nostalgic and we, we, we long for what was before. And it's great to, to go down memory lane sometimes, but we get stuck there. We get stuck there wanting God to do again what he did. And God is saying, I'm not doing that. I'm not a God of doing things again. I'm a God of moving forward, of going from strength to strength and glory to glory. What I want to do in you in the future is always greater than what I've done in the past. Even Jesus said in John 14, even greater things than these you are going to do. Even Jesus himself recognized this principle that as God moves forward and advances in our life, what he wants to do may look different. It may seem small. It may seem insignificant. It may seem paltry and nothing to us. But it's the seed of God starting something greater than what we had before. And when Haggai says that the uh, greater glory will fill this temple, what he was prophetically saying and speaking of was Jesus. The author 
of our faith, the creator of the universe would walk in the halls of this temple. That it wasn't about how it was built and the beautiful adornments on this temple, but a greater glory was gonna come from the one who walked inside, not from what was on the outside. And I really believe that this is one of the key principles, the breakthrough we need to understand is that what God wants to do in us is move us forward, not backward, in his purposes and his calling. And yes, sometimes it feels small, but it's a start. And sometimes we look at what we have and we say it's not enough. And maybe it's not in our own hands. But when we give what's small and insignificant over to God, he takes that and does something powerful and supernatural. The king of kings walking in the halls of this temple eclipsed anything that happened in the former temple. But they couldn't see it yet. They didn't get it. They didn't fully understand. just in case we think that this is only an Old Testament principle, I want you to turn with me in the New Testament to the book of John, fourth gospel. And this is where I just wanna land as we wind our way down this morning. John chapter six. After this, the after this is that Jesus and his disciples have just um, heard that Jesus' cousin and the forerunner to Jesus, John the Baptist, was beheaded and killed. And the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and they tell them this and, and it sparks this moment of panic and chaos. This moment of, oh my goodness, what is gonna happen next? This thing and this person that we've been following is now gone. What are we going to do? What are we going to do in this season of change and transition when all I feel is overcome with fear and anxiety? What am I going to do? It's after this. Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever <clears throat> ever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover. There were thousands of people streaming into the area for that. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what good is that with this huge crowd? So in this season of unrest and of fear, of the future. Jesus, I really believe, is strategic in how he chooses to teach us and walk us through these things. In this season of anxiety and stress about what is going to happen as they're living in the pain 
of loss, as they're living in the pain of, of this season that has just ended, not knowing where things are going, Jesus says, let's just sit down. I have something to show you. And I love that he first asks Philip, what he should do. Philip was actually from that part of the region. Philip was familiar with the commerce there. He was familiar with the people, and Philip had the lay of the land. And Philip, his first response, he must have been a numbers kind of guy because he gets out his ledger, and he looks at all the people, and he starts making these quick calculations, and he says, it's impossible to do this. Have you ever thought, Philip is standing Two feet, or I don't know how far it was actually, but I'll just make that up for illustration purposes. Philip is standing right in front of the author and creator of the universe. From the one who wrote the genetic code for the fish that was in that boy's hand. And in front of the creator of the universe, he says, we don't have enough money. I don't know what we should do about it. And so often when we, we are, we're confronted with challenges that seem insurmountable, instead of recognizing the power of God at work in our life, we look at the numbers and we say, it's not possible. It's not possible, God. We don't have anything. The disciples hadn't even brought their own lunch. They were up the creek as far as everybody else was. And sometimes we sit down in our homes and we look at the obstacles in front of us and we say, it's not possible, God. I don't know how this is going to work out, but it's not possible. And we find ourselves struggling while we're in the midst of the one who provides all things and brings the wealth of the nations into the temple. We say we don't have enough because we can't see how you could possibly provide it. We've talked about the fact that Jesus said that his ways are higher than ours, that God's ways are higher. He doesn't think like we think. But we look at what we see and we say, it's not enough, Jesus. And then some slightly more rational thought comes into play in this. They see this young boy. And I love how John points out that he's got two barley loaves. Barley was the cheapest, most economical. Barley bread was for poor people. And fish were so plentiful around there, they were like a dime a dozen. And so Jesus takes what everyone else is overlooking as insignificant. It's too small. There's not enough here to work with, Jesus. There's not enough I can do with this. He takes what's so insignificant and he turns around and says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to pray over this and I'm going to ask God to bless it. And then we're going to start passing it out. You know, I didn't think about this until this week, but that little boy took a huge risk too. He probably couldn't afford anything more than what he had. If this thing didn't work out, he probably would have went hungry 
And yet this small seed, this small insignificant meal, feeds 5,000 men and Lord knows how many women and children. Because they were willing to say it's small, but it's a start. The third point I want to leave with you and the final one is that God always asks us to just start with what we have. He's not asking you and I to come up with something that we don't have. What he's asking us is just to bring what we do. And the first thing we bring is our heart. We say, God, I I may not even have anything else, but I'm bringing you that in hope and trust that you can do in me what I can't do for myself. And so often we get distracted believing that God wants us to bring what our neighbor brings, or he wants us to give what somebody else is giving. And we start to live our life based on what we see other people doing around us when he says, stop. Just bring me what you have. And then watch me work. A year ago this weekend, I was playing guitar for a church in Toronto called Elevation Church. And I had just resigned from my full-time job without any safety net. I was, my plan was to just start my own business and do that. I thought that was good. With two small kids and a wife and everything else that comes with that. Last year this time, I was on the stage as part of the worship team at this church. And I was in a season where I had nothing. I didn't know exactly what God wanted to do. I didn't have much to give him. I didn't really have these grand plans or this strategic business plan. I was in a season and our family was thrust into a season of full and complete trust in God. And I certainly thought things were going to go different than they are currently. And I I even prayed for it. I've told you that story before. How Jesus and my dad won. But (laughs) Jesus and my dad. I should write a book about that. (laughs) But I was reflecting on this last year. And the fact that I was walking through a season where I had nothing to give back. I didn't even want to be involved in church ministry anymore. I was actually resistant to it. And then through some divine miracle and my wife, I just felt like saying, okay, God, I don't, ha- I don't even want to do this, but I'm going to trust you with this. If there's some way that you can use me, then I'm okay I'm okay with that. I want to talk to you for a minute about small beginnings as we work our way toward this offering we're going to take today. Because I've struggled my whole life with small beginnings, never really being interested in them. And a year ago in February, we stepped into a small beginning here. This church was in total transition 
not sure of the future. Rochelle and I and Greg and Pam and Brandon decided we were gonna try and trust God with some things. And I just wanna walk you through some really practical things to illustrate what God does with small beginnings. Last year, um, around this time, our attendance was a lot less than this. In fact, we started the year with 60 people total, including kids. And if we can pull up that graphic, Marianne, this is what happened through the course of this year. We started the year with 61. And as we decided just to give God what little we had and trust him with that, somehow, by some miracle, you're all sitting here. And I didn't come and give you money at your door to bribe you to be here today. In the last quarter, we're averaging 229 people. Overall, that's a 120% growth, supernaturally. That's what God has done here from February, basically, until now. Last year in February, I was asking our, our finance director for some of these numbers. In February, our bank account balance as a church was $292. You wanna talk about starting small? <laughs> That's not enough to cover the lights, let alone any staff people. Our average weekly giving at that point was $2,636. We needed $2,900 just to meet a budget. It's small, but it's a start. Let's just pull up that next slide, Marianne. Today, our average offering is $7,051 as of October and November. Amen. I don't know who said that, but thank you. Next one, Marianne. That's a 167% increase over our 2016 offerings. It's small, but it's a start. It's small, but when we hand over the controls to God, when we come back and just start rebuilding ourselves spiritually and trusting him with the little things, he takes what's small and insignificant and does something powerful with it. I wanna show you this next one. So we had $292 in the bank, February 19th, I think it was. Here's our bank account balance right now, $46,000. I'm not showing you that because we need to be impressed by that. What I'm showing you that is a demonstration of God's faithfulness and our commitment to steward his resources well. There, we have a list of literally probably 150 things we need to do in this building, in our parking lot, all over the place. But we've been waiting and holding and saying, God, we just want to be entrusted with what little we have first. I don't want to get ahead of myself 
and start planning for this and that and the other thing. I want to be faithful with what you've given me today. All I have are two loaves of bread and some fish. That's all I have, God. But teach me to be faithful with what you've put in my hands today. Teach me to honor you with what I have today, not what I'm hoping for tomorrow, not what I'm I'm praying will come around, but today what I have. So last night, Rochelle and I got the kids together before bed and we sat down and we we took our a check out. And we started talking to them about the story that God has been writing in our family in the last year. We talked about this season that we've been in where I haven't even had a full-time job in over a year. And how God has somehow been providing for us day after day and week after week. And sometimes it's been so hard to trust him with what little we have. And we sat them down and said, more than anything, kids, here's what we want you to know. As you're young, we want to teach you to understand and know that you can always trust God with what he's given you. That you can never outgive him. That you'll never go wrong by putting your life in his hands and trusting him. And as we talked about that a little bit as a family, we wrote the check together. And then we prayed over it. Simon, who was five, was praying for the people in New York City who needed homes and all over the place. It was amazing. I actually started laughing, which was totally derailed that prayer. But But we prayed over it saying, God, this is what we have. I said, guys, this is the largest gift we've ever given at one time. And this is costing mommy and daddy something. But I want you to know that I believe what God wants for us as a family is greater in the future than anything that we've experienced in the past. And so we're going to give this with joy and enthusiasm wholeheartedly because we believe that God wants to move us from strength to end. And we've been praying. I've been fasting for this. And I've actually had some soups and Before you just discredit my fasting, soup for me is like a double fast. (laughs) There's there's a reason why when Jesus was tempted, the devil didn't say, turn this stone into soup, because that wouldn't have been a temptation (laughs) whatsoever. So, oh, anyway, I digress. Um, We're going to take an offering now. And if you don't have one of the breakthrough offering envelopes, um, our ushers are going to come and they're going to pass some of those out. But what we're going to do is practice what the Bible teaches. And the Bible teaches us to bring our offering to God. Whatever we have, he's not asking you for something you don't have. But he's asking you for your best, the best of what you do have. And in a few minutes, I'm going to invite you to come and we're going to kind of go single file. And you're going to come from this way up to the front, and you're going to put your offering in this box. And then at the end, we're all gonna pray together and ask God to do what none of us can do on our own with this offering. 
I want you to know two things about this offering. The first thing we're gonna do is give 10% of it back to God. And the first way we're gonna do that is next week, we're giving our whole offering away. The whole thing next week, we're giving to some specific people God has put on our hearts to bless before Christmas. We're not dumping it into an account somewhere. We're actually going to tangibly be the hands and feet of Jesus next week and give the whole offering away because we so deeply are thankful for the way that God has entrusted us with growth and the resources that he has given us. How can we not give back? How can we not trust him? So that's the first thing. The second thing is we have a list. Our leaders have been, have been pouring over this list for a couple months of all of the things that we believe God has put in our hearts for growth and expansion. The parking lot is one of them, Renault's in our kids' space, whatever it is. We just believe that God has called us to put it down and then to trust him with it. So the second thing we're gonna do with this is in the new year, we're gonna begin to, to sit down with you and discern, God, how do you want us to properly leverage this resource, this offering that you've brought in? And I believe wholeheartedly the Bible says that he will give us what we need when we need it. God will provide for our needs as a church to grow in this year through this. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.